As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Thursday, February 21st, 2019. I'm Chris Higgins, in for Brian McCullough. Today... Hands-on reports with the new Samsung Galaxy S10 phones. Hands-off reports with the Galaxy Fold. Apple teams up with Goldman Sachs on a new credit card. YouTube faces another scandal running ads on horrible, horrible content. And a look at how police are grabbing location data using reverse location search warrants. Take out your pocket constitution and let's get into it. The first hands-on reports with Samsung's new Galaxy lineup are in, and the reviews are solid. The theme seems to be a good year-over-year evolution, and enough variety in the lineup to meet different needs. Here's a roundup of six key things we learned from all the hands-on reviews. Number one, the Bixby button is still there, but you can reprogram it to launch other apps, including, you know, Google Assistant. You can reassign either the single or double press of that button to open any app you want. Whichever pressing style you don't reassign remains the Bixby activator. While we're at it, Bixby now understands a few more languages, including Spanish, German, Italian, and finally, British English. Number two, the screens live up to the HDR10 Plus hype. These are displays capable of showing 10-bit color, and according to hands-on reports, they look awesome. Number three, the ultrasonic fingerprint scanner under the front glass of the S10 and S10 Plus feels futuristic, and it works well, although it does require a little more training than you might be used to. On the S10e, the sensor is on a side button, but hey, at least it's not on the back, right? And yes, facial recognition is still there if you want that. Number four, the triple camera setup on the high-end S10 models takes awesome pictures, but perhaps more interesting is video stabilization. Samsung is using that ultra-wide sensor, which happens to be 16 megapixels, to provide the stabilization data for the other two 12-megapixel cameras on the back. What this means in practice is smooth 4K video without a ton of cropping in to get rid of the shakiness. Oh yeah, and the front camera can also shoot 4K video. Vloggers, take note. Number five. The premium ceramic back options available on the highest-end S10 Plus models are popular with reviewers. Sherilyn Lowe wrote for Engadget, The material offers better scratch resistance than aluminum and just feels classier. End quote. And number six. The new S10s include Samsung Knox, a feature that can securely store your private keys. Crypto nerds, here's your new phone. Now, after all the hands-on with the S10 models, I was really hoping to see hands-on with the Galaxy Fold, but no, just on-stage demos so far. Although it's supposed to launch on April 26th in the U.S., the ordering process is still unclear. The Samsung website has a little form you can fill out to, quote, hear more about the next Galaxy. Okay, cool. So when do orders begin? I mean, this thing is supposed to ship in 64 days. Well, stay tuned, I guess. Meanwhile, the opinion pieces are landing. At The Verge, Vlad Savov wrote an editorial titled The Galaxy Fold Makes No Sense as a Consumer Device Yet. In it, he calls the Fold, quote, Samsung's Google Glass, an exciting technical showcase that is hitting the market far too soon 
and risks souring everyone on the entire nascent category, end quote. He goes on to mention the thickness of the device, which, when closed, is, quote, equivalent to that of sandwiching two Galaxy S handsets together. Now, there are questions about how good the folding screen really is in practice. Does it have a visible ridge in the middle or not? This seems to be unanswerable right now, as we haven't seen any hands-on reviews yet. Some photos from the announcement seem to show a small ridge in the middle, but other demos and videos don't. Savov likens the Fold to a beta product released to the public, with its prohibitively high price tag limiting it only to enthusiasts who will tolerate its quirks. Like, maybe, that not totally flat screen, but we don't know for sure, because nobody's gotten to touch it yet. On the other hand, there's real excitement about the technology, let's not forget that. Over on Twitter, Nilay Patel wrote, Are we all just taking it for granted that an actual folding phone exists and will ship next month? It might be a medium good product, but holy b****, this was absolutely the stuff of dreams when I was a kid. There wasn't even CGI to fake it properly. End quote. According to the Wall Street Journal, Apple is teaming up with Goldman Sachs to release a credit card offering tight integration with Apple Wallet on iPhone. The card will reportedly offer features like setting spending budgets, tracking purchase rewards, and 2% cash back. It'll be a MasterCard, and it's planned for launch later this year. Apple plans to beta test the offering with its own employees, testing integration with new Apple Wallet features coming in future versions of iOS. While it's unclear specifically what those new features will be, the journal reports that Apple executives are borrowing ideas from the Apple Watch and its fitness rings analogy, and applying those ideas to budgets. So, perhaps with this card, your phone will be able to act as a kind of financial coach, warning you when you're spending more than normal, or encouraging you to pay down credit card debt. In general, the idea here seems to be a credit card that encourages healthy spending activities. On Twitter, Maya Zahavi wrote, Fascinating partnership between Apple and Goldman Sachs. Looking for revenue through a digitally encompassing financial management platform in the iPhone garden. Wonder how that squares with the biz model. Could very easily become predatory. End quote. This will actually be the first credit card issued by Goldman Sachs, and it's expected to help draw customers to the company's online consumer bank called Marcus. On the Apple side, this is all about pumping up that sweet, sweet services revenue by expanding use of Apple Pay. We're being sponsored today by a company on a product that longtime listeners know I have used for years and cannot, literally cannot live or at least work without it. 1Password. 1Password combines industry-leading security with award-winning design to bring private, secure, and user-friendly password management to everyone. Companies lose hours every day just from employees forgetting and resetting passwords. A single data breach costs millions of dollars. 1Password secures every sign-in to save you time and money, any device, any time. 1Password lets you securely switch between iPhone, Android, Mac, and PC with convenient features like autofill for quick sign-ins. All you have to remember is the one strong account password that protects everything else. Your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. 1Password generates as many strong, unique passwords as you need and securely stores them in an encrypted vault that only you have access to. I started using 1Password, what, a decade ago? Join me and over 100,000 businesses on board the 1Password bandwagon. Because right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash ride. 
That's two free weeks at the number one, the word password, all one word, dot com slash ride. One password dot com slash ride. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop laptop that's had its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride. Okay, quick content warning. This next story mentions pedophilia, though obviously we've avoided using any graphic language or descriptions. But if you need to skip this one, you know where the skip ahead button is. Once again, YouTube's algorithms are causing headaches for advertisers. But this time, it's a toxic combination of algorithm and policy, both of which are failing to protect children from exploitation and seemingly facilitating the interests of pedophiles on YouTube. Bloomberg reports that Disney has pulled all of its advertising from YouTube in the wake of this latest scandal, joining Nestle and Epic Games. Let's dig into this awful story. On Sunday, YouTuber Matt Watson reported, quote, Over the past 48 hours, I have discovered a wormhole, as I would call it, into a softcore pedophile ring on YouTube. Here, pedophiles are trading social media contacts, they're providing links to actual child porn in YouTube comments, They're trading unlisted videos in secret, and YouTube's algorithm, through some kind of glitch or error in its programming, is actually facilitating their ability to do this. This is something that a lot of people have been aware of for a long time. End quote. What Watson found was that videos showing kids were often targeted by pedophile commenters who listed video timestamps in the comments, allowing users to jump directly to parts of the video where children did something of interest to other pedophiles. Many of the videos are seemingly innocuous to the rest of us. These are things like kids doing gymnastics routines or just like home movies filmed by their parents. But these commenters have found specific moments and shared those moments and gone a step further. They've used the YouTube comments to share contact information so they can exchange info off the platform in apps like WhatsApp or Kik. Many of the videos in question have huge view numbers, way out of proportion with other videos on the same channel, meaning that the one video of your kid doing gymnastics was identified and promoted by the YouTube recommendation algorithm, sometimes to the tune of millions of views. Now, since November 2017, YouTube has had a policy of turning off comments on videos where users are saying things that YouTube deems, and I quote, inappropriate. However, that policy doesn't always work. A report by Wired UK writer KG Orfanides uncovered video after video featuring just these sorts of comments and 
advertisements on the videos. According to Orphanides, it appears that Google's filtering doesn't work as well on non-English comments, so many of those threads are in Spanish, Russian, and Portuguese. And this is gross. There are even instances where pedophile commenters got children to respond to them in the comments. It's a clear failure on YouTube's part, whatever the technical or human errors or both that caused it. When Orphanides reached out to advertisers whose ads were running on this content, they were shocked and vowed to pull the ads and investigate. That's why the story has blown up so much, because Disney and Nestle and Epic are all doing that. But that's not where it ends. YouTube's video recommendation algorithm is very good at suggesting these niche videos, leading viewers down what Matt Wilson called the wormhole. Multiple reporters followed Watson's lead and confirmed that it's incredibly easy to get YouTube to start recommending pedophile-friendly videos, including those that are monetized with ads, and that those videos serve as a hub for pedophiles to organize online. Matt Burgess on Twitter summed it up by saying, The technical fixes YouTube tried don't seem to have worked, but a huge problem is the algorithm. End quote. Then he goes on to cite the Wired UK article by Orphanides, quote, YouTube doesn't just recommend you watch more videos of children innocently playing. Its algorithm specifically suggests videos that are seemingly popular with other pedophiles. End quote. Late breaking update, this morning YouTube told The Verge that it has terminated more than 400 channels and deleted tens of millions of comments. They have also reported comments and certain accounts to law enforcement complying with legal requirements. In a statement to The Verge, YouTube said, quote, any content including comments that endangers minors is abhorrent and we have clear policies prohibiting this on YouTube. There's more to be done and we continue to work to improve and catch abuse more quickly, end quote. And last today, in Slate, Aaron Mack takes a deep dive on so-called reverse location search warrants that police are using to locate piles of Google app and Android users after crimes have been committed. Let me quote this bit here to get started. Quote, police departments across the country have been knocking at Google's door for at least the last two years with warrants to tap into the company's extensive stores of cell phone location data. Known as reverse location search warrants, these legal mandates allow law enforcement to sweep up the coordinates and movements of every cell phone in a broad area. The police can then check to see if any of the phones came close to the crime scene. In doing so, however, the police can end up not only fishing for a suspect, but also gathering the location data of potentially hundreds or thousands of innocent people, end quote. Google told Slate, after the piece was first published, that they always require a warrant for this kind of thing and, quote, always push back on overly broad requests, end quote, where their users' privacy is concerned. But that doesn't quite square with a series of specific investigations that Mac details in the story. For instance, in Minnesota, an investigation by Minnesota Public Radio found that at least 22 reverse location search warrants have been obtained since August of last year. Quoting the piece again, The warrants have at times sought location data in 33-hour windows, potentially giving officers information on tens of thousands of people. End quote. And while these requests may sound similar to the cell phone tower records that have been used for years in criminal cases, they're far more granular. Google has data from devices that use GPS and Wi-Fi signals to determine a very precise location on an ongoing basis, rather than the broad triangulation possible using cell phone towers and intermittent pings. 
So going back to that Minnesota example, though, there are clear problems both based on Fourth Amendment rights under the U.S. Constitution as well as state law. Quoting the piece here, law enforcement needs to suspect a particular person or criminal activity, not just go, for example, search every home in a given area, says Jennifer Lynch, who serves as the surveillance litigation director for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Minnesota also has a statute dictating that police must name a person of interest in tracking warrants, so it would seem that these reverse location searches should be technically illegal in the state. End quote. Reminder, 22 warrants approved in Minnesota just since August of last year. Some police departments pushed back on the reporting. In Maine, investigators said that they follow a process in which Google assigns anonymous IDs to each phone in the data set provided to police. Then, when investigators pinpoint a specific phone of interest, they go back and get another warrant to identify that specific device. The problem with this approach is that it's at the discretion of the local police department. Quoting Jerome Greco, a state attorney for the Legal Aid Society here, Just because one police department does it this way doesn't mean the jurisdiction next to it is going to do the same, Greco said. For us to have to rely upon an internal policy of a particular police department that could change at any time is not sufficient. End quote. That's all for today's Tech Meme Ride Home. Brian will be back with you on Friday. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris Higgins. Also, I want to give a quick shout out to the Twitter bot Endless Jeopardy, my new addiction. It posts procedurally generated clues on the hour, and the most liked response gets a retweet. So here's an example. The clue is, a typical storm contains about 73 pounds of this. And the winning response from Twitter user Matt, what is men? Hallelujah. Endless Jeopardy on Twitter. Go win yourself some internet joke points. <laughs>